One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As the global death toll from the coronavirus nears a million, we take a sweeping look at what has been learned, what mistakes are still being made, and what challenges lie ahead. Some of those challenges are evident in Wuhan, site of the first known coronavirus outbreak closed down in January with remarkable speed and stringency. Our correspondent returned there, seeing how the city has and hasn't recovered. And later, New York, New York, it's a hell of a sound. We consider what's behind the accent that's beloved, derided, and imitated in equal measure the world over. This week, in America, a grim and telling number. More than 200,000 people have now died officially of COVID-19. The House of Representatives held a moment of silence yesterday to acknowledge that painful milestone. More people have been infected there than in any other country. The cases continue to climb. States that suffered the most are recovering, but infections in others are rising. The U.S., which seemed to have been making progress in tackling the virus, is again seeing infections spreading fast. And in Britain and elsewhere, there are expectations, warnings of a second wave. I'm sorry to say that as in Spain and France and many other countries, we've reached a perilous turning point. With a vaccine still well down the line, preparations are being made for an uncertain and tragic winter. And many governments have squandered precious time, failing to prepare for what's to come. I think it's important to realize that each country experiences COVID in its own way. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. Europe at the moment is going through a second wave. Cases in India are very high. But overall, it's been a consistent increase relentlessly such that there are now something like 2 million recorded cases a day. And that reflects, I think, the, both the nature of the disease and the insufficient grasp of the basic public health policy response that's required. And are there any bright spots, any positives to look to at this stage? Well, of course, in the background, which is hugely important, there's been fantastic and really impressive work by scientists and doctors, both to kind of work on the treatment protocols, to find various medicines, and to do preliminary research on the vaccine. So that's all, that's all sort of chuntering away in the background. And it is beginning to have an effect on fatality rates, but there's a lot more to come on that. And what are the improvements on the medical side specifically? Well, quite a lot of it's kind of really basic medicine. So when people first presented with what was thought to be essentially a respiratory illness, the focus was on the lungs. People were put on ventilators in very large numbers very early. And that 
that wasn't always very good for them and didn't help them as much as was needed. Now it's realised this is a disease that attacks many organs in the body, that has stroke as a big problem, the kidneys can suffer, there's heart damage, and doctors are much better at keeping an eye on fluid levels, on oxygen levels, on treating the symptoms that might be harming various organs. So just in sheer sort of management of the disease, there have been big improvements. And then, of course, the medicines have turned up, and perhaps one of the most important, um, dexamethasone, is a, is a very cheap steroid that can be bought and supplied in, in large quantities. And that has, for people who um, need oxygen and who need ventilation, can lead to substantial declines in mortality of, say, 20 to 30%. And the hope is that over the coming months, there'll be more medicines and eventually vaccines, which will bring that fatality rate down still more. And what's your sort of overarching take on the the, the public health response? Well, the public health response has, has been just much, much more variable for a number of complex reasons. I think one problem, a political problem, has been some differences on, on what the priority should be. Some countries have particularly favoured keeping the economy open, and, and Sweden's often held up as an example there, possibly an idealised example, because in fact, actually, there were quite a lot of restrictions. Others have tried to keep the death rate down to zero by having sort of blanket lockdowns on the economy. And I personally think that both of those extremes are wrong. Sweden's actually had quite a high death rate and quite a big blow to its economy compared with the neighbouring countries, Finland, Norway and Denmark, which is worse on both those measures. New Zealand has had a, a stunningly successful ability to keep the deaths right down, but it's paid a very high price because it's shut the the whole country down. And if you look at a country like Taiwan, it's been even more successful on deaths and paid a much, much smaller price in terms of the economy. And I think that that's because that countries that have been prepared to make trade-offs and have had good public health can succeed in both reducing fatality rates and in keeping bits of the economy open. But what does that look like in detail? How should that, that trade-off actually be made, do you think? Well, I think there are two or three key components. And the first of those is a really granular testing and tracing operation. The second thing that's important is being sensible about the trade-offs. And then the third thing that's important is how to communicate this. I think people are quite good in an emergency at taking difficult steps to change their lives, but it's very hard to sustain. And this will need to be sustained, it already needs to be sustained for nine months, but this will go on for a long time yet before supplies of vaccines are plentiful enough for everybody to have been vaccinated. And, and even then, the vaccines might not work that well or their effect might be temporary. So we're going to be living with this disease for a long time yet. I mean, a lot of this advice was was starting to become clear even, even months ago. And why do you think it is that different countries' responses continue to be so divergent when the, the best practice seems to, to, to be converging? I think that's a hard question to answer. I think part of it was the enormous relief when countries that had a bad first wave came out of lockdown at the end of the spring and in the early summer. 
And there was a, a sense of, gosh, people just thought, oh, thank goodness. And governments, having got through that desperate first phase of the disease, themselves were relieved and never quite caught up. I mean, the countries that have done this really, really well, and I, I think Taiwan is absolutely top of the class here, have been good from the very beginning. And you perhaps feel that some other countries are catching up. In, in other places, and the United States, I think, has to stand out as an example of this, the poor communication and the changes in, in rules reflect the politicization of the disease. There are too many people who have a stake in it working one way or another. And it's, it's a tragedy, I think, that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which went into this pandemic as perhaps the most highly regarded public health body in the world, has suffered from errors and poor leadership and denigration from the White House that's, that's just done nothing at all for the overall effort. Are you hopeful? Are you more hopeful about the, the, the post-vaccine era than the experience to date has made us all? Yes, I think people learn. I think people learn and, and they learn more slowly than, than perhaps they ought to, but they do learn. And, you know, I say the scientific response to this disease has been incredible. And, and that's something to feel cheerful about. It's just that even the best scientific response will take longer than people might like. And in that time, many people will suffer. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. This week's episode of Babbage, our sister podcast on technology and science, takes a hard look at understanding, controlling, and ultimately eliminating the coronavirus. Here again, Taiwan is an instructive example. My colleagues speak to Audrey Tang, the country's digital minister, about technological solutions to managing the pandemic. Look for Babbage from Economist Radio wherever you get your podcasts. There's much to be learned also from Wuhan in China's Hubei province. When authorities shut the city down in January, the measures against the coronavirus seemed draconian. Few elsewhere imagined that they too would soon have to live under similar restrictions. Roads closed, trains stopped, flights cancelled. A city of 11 million people effectively quarantined. Nearly six months have passed since Wuhan emerged from its grueling 76-day lockdown. Authorities claim it's recorded no new cases of COVID-19 since May. And on the surface, at least, it's back to business as usual. Earlier this month, I went to Wuhan on a government-sponsored trip. Stephanie Studer is our China correspondent based in Beijing. This is a state body called the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries. Their main purpose was to bring the bosses of 20 multinational companies to Wuhan for what they called a visit of confidence to, as they said, witness the full recovery of Wuhan. And a couple of journalists were invited to tag along, and I was one of them. I mean, certainly we remember what Wuhan was like at the beginning of the pandemic. What's it like now? It's so very different. People are filling shopping streets. The karaoke joints are open again. Most people are still wearing masks, but many of them in the open air will cast them off. And tourists from across the country are filling the uh, city's sites. In fact, while I was there, I spoke to a tourism worker. She said, they all think Wuhan is a city of heroes and they want to come and see us. 
And presumably that's a view that the government encourages. Yes, absolutely, because you have to remember that there had been a a rather disastrous early cover-up and the silencing of some whistleblower doctors. People were very upset with the handling early on. And the government now, of course, is going into full gear to show that, in fact, in retrospect, it did well. What they want to show is a relaxed Wuhan, a confident Wuhan. And, And is that something you noticed on the tour? It was very full-on propaganda. We were taken to a hospital where we heard from the director of the hospital about their battle against COVID and how successful it had been. All the party members of our hospital has been willing to assume their responsibility. But we were really just shown the entrance and we were explicitly told we were not allowed to speak to any patients or doctors We were then whisked to a school. They had just opened. And then we went to one of these makeshift hospitals. There were 16 set up in Wuhan. What they were showing us with great fanfare is that all the equipment and beds had been emptied out. Because um, the epidemic is now currently under control in Wuhan. And so most of the facilities inside the treatment center have been removed. Which really is a sign for them of how they have successfully controlled this virus. Liu Tiezhu, the district official showing us around, said that the battle against COVID-19 had made everybody realize that the people cannot pull through without the party. (laughs) And in fact, he ended by saying that he was more and more convinced that he wanted to be communist. I mean, fair enough from district officials, but do you think that that kind of view is widely shared, that the party is to be praised here? It has been very difficult for foreign journalists visiting the city to interview people on the street. I mean, we're talking about plainclothes police surrounding them in night markets and then interrogating the locals that have spoken to foreign journalists. But I was able to speak to some drivers while I was there, One in particular, a 50-year-old who was part of the volunteer fleet that kept working in the city to convey doctors' food and medicine while it was under lockdown. Mm. (laughs) He said to me that it was thanks to Xi Jinping's remarkable decisions, that's the Chinese leader, that they had managed to go back to normal in Wuhan. And he felt very proud of what he had done. I do think that that pride infuses a lot of what you hear when you speak to locals. So it's not all state-fed propaganda that you're hearing from them. I think they have a real sense that they sacrificed and they want that sacrifice to have meant something. And so they will not speak to you so much about the trauma or the difficult days. They're really just hoping to move on. Some young volunteers that I spoke to at a jog that had been organised for those 20 visiting bosses, told me that they were chill about the risk of the second wave. (laughs) And they simply said to me a catchphrase that I heard many times during my three days in the city, which was, Wuhan is the safest place now. You say that people were reluctant to talk about the traumatic part of what happened in Wuhan. Is Is that to say that there isn't evidence of it? Well, of course, COVID-19 killed almost 4,000 people in Wuhan. That was four-fifths of China's deaths to COVID-19. I think that there is a lot of 
trauma, those in the hardest hit areas will know family members, friends, friends of friends who were infected and who died. Some spoke publicly early on about feeling traumatised. One of the best known was a celebrated author called Fang Fang. But in fact, soon after, she was criticised by state media for, as they told it, only exposing the dark side of what was happening in Wuhan. And surprisingly, readers turned against her in very high numbers. So where, where does the propaganda stop and the truth start as regards trauma? I think at the moment, it's hard to get a real sense of that. But we did visit Tongji Hospital. And I asked whether or not they were seeing increasing numbers of locals coming in with signs of depression, anxiety, PTSD and trauma. And the director did tell me that they had set up a recovery unit for survivors with mental health conditions and other after effects. Yes, there were some patients suffering from like depression, anxiety or other emotions after the treatment. And he also confirmed that some who had avoided the virus were also coming in with signs of depression. So all told, your impression of Wuhan was a a city that's still recovering in many ways. In the city, there are still some telltale signs that all is not back to normal. There are a lot of closed shops that have for sale signs in the window. And if you were to take the metro, you'd find that it is not as busy as it was this time last year. So I'd say that publicly and with the government's blessing, this is a city that is back up on its feet and certainly proud of what it's gone through. In private, Fang Fang perhaps wrote it best when she said that the city would still have many more tears left to cry. Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The most effective form of birth control known to man is a Bronx accent. Or so said Louis Grizzard, a writer from small-town Georgia. American Southerners aren't the only ones who take digs at New Yorkers' English. Welcome to Coffee Talk with your host, Linda Richmond. Coffee Talk was a venerable sketch on Saturday Night Live, which of course is a long-running comedy show shot in New York City. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. It didn't have very many good jokes per se. Really, the entire joke was leaning on these exaggerated vowels like those in coffee and talk. On this show, we talk about coffee, New York, daughters, dogs, you know, no big whoop. Just coffee talk. In other words, the accent was itself the punchline. Of course, there's not just one single New York accent or one way that all New Yorkers talk. African-American New Yorkers don't speak just like Puerto Rican New Yorkers who don't speak just like a New Yorker like Woody Allen. You see the rest of the country looks upon New York like we're we're left-wing communist Jewish homosexual pornographers. Recently, a filmmaker called Nicholas Heller had a competition on his Instagram to find the best New York accent. And hundreds of people submitted their entries. And these entries really reflected that whole spectrum of different voices from New York. I'm a New Yorker over here in Long Island, because I'm a Long Islander, a strong Ocean, Island. Like, me, so, you know, I'm posting in front of the Oxford Gang and all that, you know, we're blowing wild gas and all that heavy on the Sicilian mother from Sicily, a pit bull. Um, I'm from Staten Island. 
Um, my family's from Brooklyn, but they don't come visit me because they don't want to pay $19 for a bridge. Makes sense. Born and raised in Brooklyn, you don't get more real than this, people. This is authentic. And even though I'm a free spirit and all that, I, 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 I could get real aggy in a second. So don't for one second think I'm going You don't have nothing else better to do? As the New York Times put it after the contest, New York English isn't really a single accent. They said it was something like a baseline indignation, as if the speaker can't quite believe there's even the need to have a conversation. The reason there are so many different accents in New York is very largely a product of immigration. It's been both a destination for foreign immigrants, but also domestic migration. And New Yorkers' accents can also signal social class. The coffee talk accent in particular is working class. Though you can hear rich people who have it, they've usually come up from working class roots. Now there once was an aristocratic upper class New York accent, which had several things in common with a coffee talk accent. There was no clear R sound after vowels and before consonants. If you think about words like fear in... That the only thing we have to fear is... From Franklin Roosevelt. New York upper class English even had this sort of rounded vowel that was made famous in a caricature when people say toity toid for 33rd. Teddy Roosevelt, who was also an aristocratic New Yorker, said the word burn a little bit like boing. In the middle of the 20th century, the New York accent was still seen as something worth imitating. But then Americans started to see New York City as a bit of an alien entrepot or hive of slightly undesirable foreigners. It also dragged down the image of the city's accent. And at the same time, people started looking for a sort of real American English elsewhere. That locus of true American speech became the Midwest. Of course, Wisconsin isn't all lakes and gorges and forests. They have some of the richest dairy land in the country. Fine big herds. They very clearly pronounce the R's in words like fear or car. And so that is why today's general American, as it's sometimes called, sounds more like Nebraska, which is relatively speaking the provinces, than it does like New York. If you have seen the recent Avengers films in any of them, you'll find that Captain America, though he is supposed to have been raised in the 1930s in Brooklyn, has no trace of New York City in his English at all. About trying to win the war. We can't do that without bullets and bandages, tanks and tanks. That's where you come in. Every bond you buy will help protect someone you love. In the movies and in film and television, clowns or villains or mobsters, they talk like Brooklyn. But the idea of a superhero like Captain America speaking that way is basically unthinkable. It's interesting because in other countries, you'll often hear that people are told to imitate the speech of the capital or the biggest, richest, most important city. A good example of that is Parisian French. New York is almost the exact opposite. New Yorkers know that their accent is unpopular, but they really don't care. Even derided accents, they have a real value to their speakers. It's a store of your connections, your community, your identity, and your values. And I think deep down, New Yorkers have a sense that they live not in the capital of the United States, but in the capital of the world. Our language columnist, Lane Green.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow.